Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good, good morning. I'd like to welcome all of you and our very special guest, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, to UC San Diego. As you know, the Dalai Lama promotes peace and global responsibility, and we here at UC San Diego share that passion and vision, Your Holiness. In fact, service is part of our mission. UC San Diego is also known and highly ranked for our efforts to be green and sustainable, another value we share with you. His Holiness was the first Nobel laureate to be recognized for his concern about global environmental problems, and we applaud your efforts to ensure a healthy and sustainable future for our planet and for our people. Enhanced quality of life is something we've been working on for decades at UC San Diego and at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. In fact, our founding father, Roger Avell, and Charles David Keeling were pioneers of global warming research. They were going green before anyone knew it or knew what it meant to be green. It was Keeling who started documenting the steady rise in carbon dioxide levels in the 1950s through the Keeling Curve, bringing the world's attention to the greenhouse effects and global warming. And today our researchers continue to build on that innovative research. During this morning's panel, we will hear from two of our leading Scripps scientists who, like the Dalai Lama, are working to ensure a better planet and a better future for all of us. But first, I'd like to introduce Pierre Omidya, founder and chairman of eBay. He is an innovator, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, who has provided more than $1 billion to numerous causes, including poverty alleviation and disaster relief. He and his wife, Pam, who will speak tomorrow during His Holiness's visit, may have created, they have created four organizations to create opportunities for people to improve the quality of life. And as a founding partner of Omidyard Network, Pierre provides the vision and strategic direction for the organization and helps to shape the investment initiatives that they undertake. To date, Omidyard Network has invested nearly $450 million to support organizations around the world in such areas as microfinance, property rights, and government transparency. So please join me in welcoming Pierre Omidyar to UC San Diego. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. It's my honor to uh, introduce to you uh, His Holiness. His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, was born in eastern Tibet in 1935. As a precocious two-year-old, the course of his life was changed forever when he was recognized as the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama. He soon began his monastic education and was destined to become the leader of his people once he reached adulthood. But world events interrupted this plan and abruptly changed the course of his life. Several years ahead of schedule, due to the threat of the advancing communist army, he was enthroned as the spiritual and temporal leader of Tibet. He was only 16 years old. Barely 10 years later, when his efforts at appeasement had proven unsuccessful, he was forced to flee during an uprising by Tibetans against their communist oppressors. 
The year was 1959. For weeks, the rest of the world was gripped in suspense over the young Dalai Lama's fate. He and his party trekked across the world's most treacherous escape route through the Himalayas, evading communist forces at every turn, desperate to reach the safety of India. That was a little more than 50 years ago, and the Dalai Lama has been a refugee ever since. During that time, he has remained steadfast in his commitment to nonviolence and a peaceful resolution with China based on tolerance and mutual respect. Today, he accepts that Tibet should remain a part of the People's Republic of China and asks for Tibetans only what the Chinese government has guaranteed in its own constitution, genuine autonomy over their own cultural, religious, educational, and administrative affairs. In 2011, uh, at his own initiative and after architecting decades of democratic reforms, he officially devolved his political leadership to an elected body. This brought an historic end to the nearly 400-year-old tradition of the Dalai Lamas holding both dual responsibility over spiritual and temporal matters. During his half-century in exile, the Dalai Lama has become a recognized world leader for peace and interreligious harmony. He has tirelessly traveled the world advocating the concept of universal responsibility, the notion that by virtue of our interconnectedness, we all share responsibility for each other and the natural world. His efforts were recognized by the Nobel Committee in 1989. In awarding him the Nobel Peace Prize, the committee cited his consistent opposition to the use of violence, his philosophy of universal responsibility, and his work on international conflicts, human rights, and the environment. And in 2007, at the U.S. Capitol, the Dalai Lama received the highest civilian award given by the United States, the Congressional Gold Medal. A Republican president joined a Democratic Congress and Republican minority leaders to speak at the ceremony. This was a rare moment of agreement between Democrats and Republicans. The Dalai Lama really can work miracles. <laughs> Which brings us to the subject of today's talk. When it comes to climate change, it sometimes feels like we'll need a miracle to come to agreement on what needs to be done, or even, dare I say, agreement that there's a problem. The science and evidence of climate change is already compelling, yet the world has not acted decisively. We have to ask ourselves, why not? Clearly, for the world to act, scientific evidence alone is not sufficient. What's needed is a change of spirit. Luckily, His Holiness has a great deal of experience bridging science and spirituality. Now, some skeptics might argue that spirituality is unnecessary when dealing with scientific matters. But what is science, if not a means for us to understand our world? And what is understanding, if not a means for us to be at peace with what is known and what is yet to be known? Understanding is a matter of spirit, not science. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is no ordinary spiritual leader. Because his Buddhist training has taught him to examine reality with a critical eye, his approach to understanding the world is more similar to the scientific method than it is to religious doctrine. Rather than accept simple or simplistic explanations, His Holiness advises us to search deeply for the real causes and to take a wider perspective so that we understand all of the factors involved. This type of inquiry has informed his dialogue with scientists for nearly 30 years. 
He has said that wherever scientific evidence conclusively contradicts Buddhist beliefs, those beliefs must be discarded. And various scientific fields have found a treasure of knowledge in the over two millennia of continuous Indian and Tibetan inquiry into the nature of reality and our place within it. This decades-long dialogue earned him the 2012 Templeton Prize, recognizing his exceptional contribution to upholding spirituality as an essential component of life and his long-standing support of scientific research into spiritual concepts and their potential to address the world's fundamental problems. Science has created new instruments that overcome the limits of our natural senses, but it is the mind that must create meaning and the spirit that brings understanding. So I can think of no better person than His Holiness the Dalai Lama to help point the way forward for all of humanity to come to grips with what is destined to be one of the greatest challenges of our time and our children's time. Your Holiness, we are honored by your presence and grateful for your engagement in this important dialogue. Now I'd like to introduce our two panelists from UC San Diego's Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who will join the Dalai Lama in the discussion of the global impact of climate change. Richard Somerville is a distinguished professor emeritus and an expert in theoretical meteorology and computer simulations of the atmosphere. He's been a strong contributor to our current thoughts of how global warming takes place. You may recognize him because he comments frequently on climate and environmental issues for the media. He was, for example, a coordinating lead author for the 2007 fourth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which he shared in 2007 as the Nobel Peace Prize, equally with Al Gore. And V. Ramanathan, Ram as he's known, is a distinguished professor of atmospheric and climate sciences. In 1975, he discovered the greenhouse, greenhouse effect of chlorofluorocarbons and continued to press upon the world the large warming effect of pollutants other than carbon dioxide. His lifelong work, in part, led to the creation this year of a program by Secretary of State Clinton to cut these pollutants to slow down global warming. So first we'll hear from Dr. Somerville. Thank you, Your Holiness, Chancellor Fox, distinguished visitors, colleagues, UCSD students, friends. Climate has always changed from natural causes, but what is different now in our time is that human activities have become the dominant factor. We people, our generation today, now control what the climate will be for our children and grandchildren. We did not seek this power, but we have it, because we have long used the atmosphere as a free dump for the side effects and waste products of human activities. For example, burning coal and oil and natural gas produce carbon dioxide, and as a result, carbon dioxide is about 40% more plentiful in the atmosphere today than it was 150 years ago. Science tells us that the resulting stronger greenhouse effect will have many consequences including rising temperatures, higher sea levels, altered precipitation patterns, more weather extremes such as floods and droughts and heat waves, and dramatically shrinking glaciers and ice sheets and sea ice. We're already seeing these changes. 
They're being observed now. The many new high temperature records set in the United States this year and the severe drought that has ravaged parts of this country may well be foretastes of the future. Climate change will strongly affect human beings and ecosystems and ultimately all life on Earth. Recent research findings show that previous projections have not exaggerated the threat of climate change. Indeed, they may have underestimated it. These findings include new measurements showing that the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets are now losing mass and contributing to sea level rise. Also, Arctic sea ice extent has decreased much more rapidly than had been expected. The problem is getting worse. Current global carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels are now about 40% higher than they were in 1990. Best current estimates, if emissions continue to rise year after year, are that global sea level rise may exceed one meter, about three feet, by 2100, with a rise of up to two meters, roughly six feet, considered possible. In a moment, my colleague Professor Ramanathan will discuss important short-lived climate pollutants. I now turn to the challenge of reducing the world's emissions of long-lived heat-trapping gases produced by human activities, of which the most important is carbon dioxide. Because much of the carbon dioxide that human activities emit remains in the atmosphere for centuries, it is the total amount of our global cumulative emissions that matter. Carbon dioxide is also thoroughly mixed by the winds, so the amount of carbon dioxide in the air is nearly the same everywhere. Thus, all of humanity has contributed to the problem, but some countries much more than others, and the entire world will experience the resulting climate change. This fact makes limiting climate change a global challenge. Science cannot say what level of climate change is dangerous. That is a subjective issue involving risk tolerance, values, priorities, and other concerns. But people can decide, and many governments have now adopted the aspirational goal of limiting global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, above the pre-industrial temperatures of the 1800s. Then, once that decision is made, climate science can usefully inform policy decisions by showing what actions are needed to give the world a reasonable chance of meeting that goal. It will not be easy to limit climate change to moderate levels. We have already observed substantial warming. If today's emission rates continue without change, not increasing, then after just 20 more years, the world will no longer have a reasonable chance of limiting warming to the target of less than 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 Fahrenheit. To meet this goal, science tells us, science didn't set the goal, but it helps let us know what we have to do to meet it. Science tells us that global greenhouse gas emissions, the rate at which we're putting carbon dioxide and the other gases into the atmosphere, must peak within the next five to 10 years and then start to decline rapidly, reaching near zero well within this century. The case for urgency in taking meaningful actions to reduce emissions is thus scientific, not ideological or political. 
If the world continues to procrastinate and emissions globally continue unabated for another 10 years, then science predicts the window will have closed and the opportunity to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius will be lost. Instead, it is our children and grandchildren and their descendants who will be forced to cope with more severe climate disruption. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said politicians must focus their energy on finding a solution to climate change. Your Holiness has said, quote, sometimes their number one issue of importance is national interest, national economic interest, and then the global warming issue is sometimes second. That, I think, should change the global issue. It should be number one. Unquote. Your Holiness, I look forward to hearing your views on how scientists like us can work more effectively with spiritual leaders and others to help meet this global challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your Holiness, Chancellor Fox, and distinguished members of the audience, it's my great honor and pleasure to bring you a scientific message of hope. There is a practical and proven way to slow down global warming considerably during our lifetime. In fact, we can cut down the expected warming over the coming decades by almost a half, and thus slow down melting of the glaciers and snowpacks, particularly the Himalayan Tibetan glaciers, which are referred to as the water fountain of Asia because they provide the headwater for most major rivers. We can also slow down sea level rise uh, during this, I'm talking about next few decades to uh, 50 years, and thus provide island nations like the Maldives and Sri Lanka a few more decades to adapt to major climate changes, which we heard from Professor Somerville. In fact, this new solution is called mitigation of short-lived climate pollutants. In fact, in my view, this is the first time mitigation of air pollution has emerged as a major way to mitigate climate change, at least in the short term. Two months ago, the New York Times referred to this as the second front in our fight against climate change. So I'm sure many of you have not heard about this because so far the solution has been buried deep in the hundreds of papers in scientific literature. And the first study, in fact, which started this, was published only in 1975. However, fortunately, two months ago, Secretary of State Clinton teamed up with the United Nations and several other nations and formed a coalition to take this agenda forward. Two weeks ago, President Obama included the solution in his declaration of the North American heads of state. And next week, environmentalists from around the world are going to hear about the solution. So let me tell you what the solution is. Until now, the focus has been primarily on carbon dioxide, necessarily so, from fossil fuels. 
But that has proven to be impossibly difficult to take any meaningful action. It turns out about 50% of the current global warming is from pollutants other than carbon dioxide. Methane, we affiliate with natural gas, black carbon in soot, ozone in smog, and halocarbons, which are used as refrigerants and propellants in spray cans. We know how to reduce them drastically. To give one example, California has cut down its black carbon emissions from diesel by 50% in just 20 years. Let me give you another example which links this air pollution to health. Another major source of... Should I wait? Another major source of black carbon and ozone is cooking with solid biomass, such as dung and firewood. Inhalation of the smoke kills millions of women and children every year. We have tested and developed cleaner cooking stoves, which cuts down this climate warming pollutant significantly. I'm talking about 50 to 70 percent. If such efforts can be scaled up to the 2.7 billion who have no access to fossil fuel and depend on this biomass, we can save almost 4 million lives every year. So in this new second front, in our fight against climate change, all we are asking people and heads of state is please clean up the air. I hope there's no lobby for let's pollute the air more. So in so doing, we will protect the beautiful icons of the planet, the blue skies, our spectacular glaciers. You saw some of them before. And we save lives. More than that, in addition to that, we can save 100 million tons of crop damages every year. So last year, we organized a meeting at the Vatican on behalf of the Holy Father, Pope Benedict. The declaration from the Vatican meeting, which is on the screen, opened my eyes to the vital role that spiritual leaders can play in this war against climate change. For as we all know, it is the spiritual leaders who have the moral authority to remind citizens and their leaders of the universal responsibility to protect the planet's environment. Your Holiness, you did so very eloquently in your recent book, Beyond Religion, Ethics for a Whole World. You devote a whole section to this, and your theme of compassion without borders is a perfect solution for this, because air pollution and atmosphere knows no boundaries. What we pollute here today travels around the world in a matter of days to weeks. So I join my colleague, Professor Somerville, and say on behalf of this illustrious audience, we are looking forward to your guidance and views on solving this global problem. Thank you.
brothers and sisters, of course, respected scientists, and also the Vice Chancellor. Usually, when I give talk, no note, no preparation. <laughs> Main reason, I'm lazy. <laughs> I never spend homework. <laughs> so now here, say, to my colleague, the very well prepared. <laughs> so, so perhaps my turn. Um, so there's a Tibetan expression which is well said, and I agree exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> so, my own story or experience when we were in Tibet. When we were in Tibet, uh, we have no idea about the importance of environment or the, the pollutions. Everything very clean. So, for example, uh, when we uh, travel long distance mm, on horse or sometimes yak, uh, when we feel thirst, some river, streams. some uh, streams. streams come, immediately we drink. Uh, no idea. Same water, uh, one polluted one. You cannot drink. No idea. Then after I came to India, uh, then uh, when you see some people say, this water cannot drink. I'm a little bit surprised. Then gradually, uh, as, a day, as a result of contact with environmentalists, scientists, huh? scientist, then uh, I really see uh, develop some kind of very special interest and also this is not just this academic sort of feeling. This is a question of our life. Our survival. No. Uh, our survival. Not only individual, but entire planet. If something really goes wrong, then the entire uh, humanity and billions billions of other species of mammals, it affects. So this is something very, very serious. Very serious. I often used to tell him or expressing this blue small planet is only our home, no other planet so far. Perhaps uh, after some time we may find some suitable planet, then we can, if this planet really goes hopeless, then may immigrate. <laughs> but that also just a hope. <laughs> difficult, not very sure. So therefore, the only thing is, this is our plan, our home. We have to take care. Uh, and that also, uh, another, another thing, uh, 
unlike violence, bloodshed, war, war. Uh -huh. also the sort of those starvations. When we saw pictures in response immediately, ah, how bad, we have to do something. The climate, so this problem, invisibly, isn't it? Mm -mm. Once, you see, you actually, you see, uh, now some big cities, you see, you need some kasa. A mask. Oh. And then you see some uh, irritation in our eyes or some problem in our lungs, particularly those uh, young ch ch children. Uh, then maybe too late. I only escape from that area and prefer some other area. Uh, so the uh, climate sort of condition, environment things are really very, very serious. So we have to develop serious concern about that through education, through awareness. So here, the scientists like you are truly guru or teacher uh, make clearer awareness, understanding about the importance of environment. Uh, and your sort of or is it the explanation on the basis of data? Data, no. Data, data. data yeah, facts. So, uh, very convincing, very convincing. It is very, very important. Uh, so, uh, not further, I mean, uh, some kind of reputation. As you already sort of mentioned, as my sort of expression, they still uh, we are lacking the full sort of effective cooperation. This is the issue of humanity, not this nation or that nation, uh, entire planet, for for entire planet. So we need the worldwide some kind of movement. This is very essential. So sometimes, like the Denmark Copenhagen. or Copenhagen sort of summit, sometimes you see uh, nations consider their own interest is more priority than global issue. So that's actually short-sightedness. No matter one individual country, big, great, but still part of the world. Uh, uh, so therefore, it is common interest. Each individual's nations, each individual person's interest. So we have to, so through awareness, educate more sort of precise, detailed sort of explanation is very, very essential. Uh, that I, I know. Then how to protect? Uh, I don't know. You have this sort of ability to show clear sort of instruction or guidance, right? As, as I think you mentioned, for example, you spoke of how we can immediately take measures of reducing the soot release here. I have been uh, several occasions in uh, Mongolia, the capital, Ulaanbaatar, 
of course, uh, generally cold climate, and then each family is using dosuk metan. Cold. Oh, so it's a very thick sort of city, small, small climate. Oh, and they say now health viewpoint is not dangerous. good, no. dangerous. dangerous. They say like that. So like that in China, and also in India. Uh, I think those area not sort of modern facilities, not yet developed. developed. And then cutting trees uh, and use wood like that. So we, uh, that I think that also related with economies of development like that. Uh, then, then usually my sort of main effort is. Uh, entire humanity. Uh, basically, we are social animal. So each individual's future depend on the rest of the humanity. Particularly now, nowadays, the not only nation to nation, but also continent to continent, heavily interdependent. So the reality itself now really tell us, show us, we need full sort of cooperation. The cooperation uh, under water difficult. Cooperation based on a city, a city, clear realization: we are one, oneness of humanity. Uh, here, the sense of global responsibility. Uh, with that, once you see we develop oneness of humanity, then. Emma's trust, respect come. Uh, without trust, how can develop friendship? Without friendship, how can develop genuine, meaningful cooperation? So ultimately, uh, realize the seven billion human being, same human being, everyone have right to overcome suffering. So, so from one individual, how can I make some contribution yes. regarding better for the world, better humanity? Uh, in order to develop that sort of attitude, uh, if you keep extreme self-centered attitude and short-sightedness, then no bother about about what 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 happening. Just think of oneself. That's short-sighted. Actually, we are part of that. So, for our own interest, we have to take care about the rest of the world. So, so through education, through awareness, my my own sort of part, I always try to promote. make clear, uh, promote love, uh, promote uh, some kind of sense of concern of well-being of rest of the humanity, and rest of the sentient being on this planet, and then. Uh, for that, uh, you need some kind of sense of oneness, humanity, and sense of global responsibility. Or then, Sudeshwala told me uh, many years ago, but the, almost I think the first period of my sort of contact with scientists, scientist. then Bob. 
Livingston. Livingston. Oh, wonderful scientist, wonderful person. So not only my close friend, but also I learned a lot from him. So he... Uh, Bob Livingston was from the University of California, San Diego. Yeah, he told me. So, so some special connection. So I really, I always remember him. Such a nice person, now no longer with us. He also very much committed about peace uh-huh. and ending nuclear, okay. like that. So he told me once, he told me about 20,000 doctors, uh, about sort of that, some movement against nuclear weapon, like that. So one time, he, uh, he expressed he wanted to invite me to their meeting in Hiroshima. But that didn't materialize. <laughs> like that. So, so I'm very happy. So now some discussions. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Some questions from audience? No questions. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, so this is from um, Jeff Sherman. Throughout civilization's history, we have been at conflict. Governments, religions, politics, business, even academia. Although conflict can spark creativity, it fails for problems requiring global cooperation. So how can societies shift perspectives from conflict-driven to cooperation-driven policies? I think awareness, education. I think, for example, in previous century, in early part of the 20th century, nobody see, talks about environment, importance of environment. Through awareness, now, uh, awareness much, much sort of increased. Increased. Uh, increase. uh, and then, I think, in, in, I think in the early part of the 20th century, uh, I think sense of coexistence. I think not there. Then, after the Second World War, two blocks with nuclear weapon. So, in some, some extent, I think a nuclear weapon worked deterrence. Deterrent. Oh. So, the concept of because of the coexistence, you see, these things happen. Totally different system, different ideology, but share same planet, share peace. So therefore, live together. So these things, you see, and then I always admire the spirit of European Union. In uh, previously, these member states fought uh, for their own sovereignty of these things. Uh, then. I think under the leadership of Adenauer, then West Germany, and then I think De Gaulle, France. I think under the under leadership, I mainly leadership these two, uh, so the European Union, you see develop. I think this is, uh, these are through awareness. The common economy interest is more important for long run than individual currency. Look, German, German Deutschmark, very strong. But they consider the common interest is more important than their national. 
I mean, national interest also related with that. So, so these are through education, through awareness, uh, thinking widened. So these things. Uh, now I think, obviously, some sort of sensible person, I think, automatically come 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 to in their mind some question: What is wrong? Uh, existing sort of way of life. Yes, prosperity. Every year, some development. Now, recent few years, you are, you are facing some problems. <laughs> and also Europe. <laughs> and Euro, the Euro crisis, quite serious. <laughs> and here, America, also some problems. I think now, some improvement. Economic condition now, some improvement. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, improvement. Is it improving? Mm. Uh, so you simply, you see, uh, concern your sort of uh, big building, uh, big house, there's a big car, and uh, big salary, then feel, oh, that is the meaning of life. <laughs> no, certainly not. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, so you see, among my friend, seems to some are quite very rich, maybe billionaire, but as an individual, very unhappy, very unhappy person. Then the question comes, why? Plenty of money. Because of that money, it's quite because of, the, well, because of fame. Right? Long, famous long. And a lot of sort of artificial friends isn't there, but still the person failed bring inner peace. Why? So, we must sort of, we must use human intelligence to, to, to put sort of questions, to bring questions. That's, I think, very, very important. You should, you should not take something, take for granted. We have everything. Now, this go continuously. I think that's, that's a mistake. Time is changing. The reality is changing. One of the factors is human population increasing. Now, that's a very serious matter. Very serious matter. So, usually, so I have joke, you see, take, so expressing. Uh, we need non, genuine non-violent birth control is necessary. That is, I mean, that is more monks, more nuns. <laughs> So the population, uh, rapidly increasing population, now that is a very, very serious matter. Very serious matter. Then our lifestyle have to take very seriously. It's a big question. And still, same planet, same human being, one part of the world, same planet, facing starvation. Not adequate, basic needs. needs. Other, some other, surplus, difficult, same human being, same right. So we have to think very seriously these things. If the presence of the thinking continuously, I think sooner or later we will face some problems. We have to think uh, according to the new sort of uh, new change, new reality. You have to think. That's my view.
So through education, through awareness, we can change our mind. Then you too. <laughs> question. Answer, answer for this question. We agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> Maybe you can take the next one. Yeah. Um, this is from Rick Thomas. Um, the short-term political and economic interests of countries and corporations often appear to overwhelm global cooperation on long-term environmental issues. Do you think there is a way or indeed a need to change political thinking or framework to include greater consideration of the natural world? <laughs> yes, I do think so. And, uh, and I think if we think about why the political process has been so slow and so ineffective in many ways in doing what needs to be done, I think it's because we have to educate our political leaders and tell them that this is important. When polling data in this country and many other countries shows that the environment, climate, rank very low compared to things like economic prosperity, national security, education, then we find that politicians can conveniently ignore it. So I ask people who take this issue seriously uh, to tell their politicians that it's important to them. We have a democratic government and politicians react uh, to pressure from voters. So that's... Uh, one piece of advice. Yes, I think that's an excellent question. I, as a natural scientist, I'm always puzzled when I go to these international meetings. The economics and environment are seen as competing with each other. And there may be multidimensional issue, but some of the blame maybe has to be shared by the scientists for this, because when we talk about climate change, we normally talk about what's going to happen 100 years from now. So it gives the economist to say, do you want to take that benefit now or wait for 100 years? But what we are finding, the climate change is happening now. And I gave an example, and His Holiness talked about sharing. You know, we have left behind 2.7 billion people behind. They have no access. They don't even know what fossil fuel is. And so, but yet, the smoke from their stoves settles on the Himalayas in addition to the lungs. So the health and climate are so connected and they're happening now. 80% of the Himalayan glaciers are melting. The Alps has lost about 60% of its ice mass. So we have signed of need to work on telling people they're happening now. And the scientists focus on 100 years from now because we are worried about Greenland glacier melting because that would be an unmitigated catastrophe. So we need to sensitize our economists. I hope there are mem members from our economics department here. 
the changes are happening now. So I think that awareness hopefully would take this argument not competing with each other, but we are working together. Maybe, or oh, I think one sort of mistake we so far up to now we simply sort of because of the uh, look the because of the material values and then modern education itself seems to see oriented about economy. Uh, the concern, material sort of concern, not talking about our inner value. So the problem may be, uh, I often see uh, uh, expressing, may be wrong or may be right. In the European continent, uh, the separate education institution started like Bologna University in Italy, I was told more than a thousand years old. So when that separate education institution started, then the moral ethics taken care by church. So quite well sort of balanced. Now modern time, the influence of the church uh, in reality, a little bit sort of that decline. decline. Oh. Uh, then uh, so the newly developed separate education institution. Uh, now actually that institution alone should take care uh, because of the brain development as well as development of warm-heartedness. Then the big question, how to introduce in education field these ethics, how to educate. Some my friend believe ethics, moral principle, ethics must be based on religious faith. Then multi-religion society difficult. And also including non-believers there. That's why India last, I think at least more than 2,000 years the uh, what's the Secular, secularism. Secularism, according to Indian sort of understanding, not sort of against religion or disrespect to religion, but rather respect to all religions. And then also including non-believer. In India, more than 2,000 years, certain sort of school of thought denying existence of Kazoda. Uh, life after death. Uh, I think, actually, I think existence of your spirituality, simply day by day's life and material value, nothing. So that uh, uh, the, uh, so the Indian literature called that school of thought is nihilism. Yet, you see, the rest of the sort of different school of thought criticize that school of thought as a nihilism, Charvaka, Indian language, Charvaka. Oh. However, 
the person who hold that view refer rishi. Rishi means sage. So that indicates respect. Even those, those people who denying the value of spirituality still respect. Criticize their view, but respect. So, according Indian tradition, respect, secularism also respect non-believer. Uh, so, I always say, I very much impressed the secularism. Respect all religion, no preference in this religion or that religion, and also non-believer, they're also part of the humanity. Uh, so therefore, they compassion without border. So those non-believers also human brothers and sisters, we have to sort of respect them. We have to take serious concern about their well-being. Uh, so, in education, you see, the, uh, it's about the spirituality or inner value, compassion, these things. Uh, the way sort of educate these things, not related with religion. Because, you see, no matter how one religion, wonderful religion, but still, it never be universal, universal, isn't it? So we, in education, now many countries in Europe, in America, also it's a secular education. So we find ways and means to how to how to introduce, introduce, introduce. introduce in modern education about these the values. Uh, these values. So education itself now not simply oriented material value, but internal values combined. Then, from kindergarten up to university level, you see, such sort of education, well-balanced, concerned about material value, concerning about internal value, go together, then perhaps uh, we can... And then televisions or radios or newspapers, these also you see, should, Kasuda, uh, should take active role promoting these values. Then I think uh, uh, next generation, maybe Kasuda, uh, more Kasuda, generation who have more holistic view. Then leadership come from that kind of sort of uh, society sort of society, will be different. But up to now, our society also, you see, always talk money, 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 money. That's all. Isn't it? Individually, yes, some interest about spirituality. But this also is not very serious. Uh, and Sunday church, where? Yeah. Where? Church, Sunday service, is attend there. Few moments, close your eye. And remember God, but outside nothing. <laughs> we Indians, I think millions of Indians also, <laughs> in each home, some uh, sort of recite some shloka, Sanskrit, chanting. without uh, chanting, uh, chanting, uh, chanting, chanting, without knowing the meaning, <laughs> and not very serious. Uh, then outside, oh, whenever you find opportunity, corruptions. 
don't care. So these people actually not very serious religious religious practitioners, isn't it? So, so I think that is, I, like here you see one university. I think professors or specialist educationists, I think should carry some research work. How do, now whether this existing education system is really adequate or not? People who grown up through this such education system, we find something like it. That is clear. So shaping human mind through education, through awareness, through education. So education should be something complete. That's my view. Of course, as far as uh, as far as my own concern, the modern education is better. As Holmes was saying, that as far as he. Uh He's personally concerned that um, when it comes to modern education, he doesn't know or think about it. <laughs> oh. So it is quite kasoda, kasoda. Machine education, So, so talking, making comments about the shortcomings of modern education system, coming from someone who has no idea about what modern education system is, <laughs> may seem a bit presumptuous. <laughs> But I think everybody can see. Syndrome, something oh, lagging a bit, because of negligence. Negligence, no. Uh, yes. Now, next question. <laughs> a, uh, there was one question which was um, how d- this is from Christine Schulz. How do you see environmental conservation coexisting or complementing? More human-centered goals, such as lifting people out of poverty. <laughs> I think that there are many things that are technologically possible that we haven't yet, as a as a people, as, as the world, found the political will to do, but. If they were done, there would be a lot of benefits, including lifting people out of poverty, because there are technically many exciting possibilities, both at, available at present and likely to be available in the future, if we work toward them. I'm thinking of all the means of energy conservation, energy efficiency, clean energy of various kinds, switching to renewable fuels, because when you do them. You help the planet, you help the climate, but you also save money. You reduce the need for armies and protecting oil routes and uh, spending uh, money abroad. And uh, so it helps the balance of payments. It helps the air quality where you live, and it has it creates jobs. It has many many benefits. And for people who think things can't change. Uh, there are many examples. There are countries where renewable energy is, has uh, skyrocketed in percentage of, of use. Uh, France went off uh, fossil fuel electricity in one generation, and uh, I'm convinced that change is possible when people want it. You can talk about how resistant the political system is, but in this country, a hundred years ago, we didn't have an income tax, and now everybody thinks it's normal. So if that kind of change can happen, so that you're Subsidizing good behavior, penalizing bad behavior. I'm optimistic uh, from what technology can do, 
and uh, guardedly optimistic about what will politically be possible. So I wanted to pick up the theme of the link between environmental conservation and the type of climate change we are talking about and poverty. So I want to go back to the, what I call the left behind 2.7 billion and the uh, firewood and cow dung they use. I know this because my grandmother used to cook with uh, biomass fuels. And Your Holiness, you, you correctly and beautifully pointed out that tr- the firewood comes from deforestation trees. That alone puts about a billion tons of carbon dioxide. And then I'm talking about this soot in the black carbon. There have been recent work, many groups have shown, this black carbon settles on the Himalayan glaciers and may be contributing as much as 50%. And the same with Arctic sea ice. So this is a classic problem. Why are these 2.7 billion using this? Not because they want to destroy the planet. They just can't afford anything else. And in this project I, I was mentioning, we have found a $30 to $40 stub. It has to be energy efficient with a four-strap fan. It takes care of most of the problem. And to provide this $40 stub, to the whole 2.7 billion is a $10 billion problem. Climate, we are talking about trillions of dollars to solve that problem. So that is where we are hopeful, linking that cook stoves with air pollution and climate change and glacier melt. They may be able to access the climate financing funds and solve a problem which as society we should have solved 50, 100 years ago. So there is, there, there, I'm just giving you one example. There are many, many such examples where you help those who are impoverished and they have no access to ours, give them cleaner access, would, sell, would address many of the issues. Um, so this question is from Brian. Although I think maybe uh, impractical, you know, the Baba uh, Amte near Nagpur. Uh, I visited his sort of say, colony, his sort of center. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, so uh, I was told their member, one, their member, when they die, usually you see burned. They're usually burned. So their member in that colony, someone die, and sort of they cause a red pumbutusti. Uh, wrap it up in a cloth. Uh-huh. And then bury it. Uh-huh. 
not burning, not burned. And then uh, plant one tree. So after a few decades, that body was assimilated to the earth. And memory about that, sort of per, that person, one tree. I think that that kind of a practice. So otherwise, you see millions of people, because of burn, a lot of people, like that. Uh, and they, they, what say, they, they, the Ganges, Ganges, Ganga. Oh, a few times you say, I, uh, I passed through. Oh, not, I mean, not justice. Go some, let's say, tourist now. Yeah, some, some prayer or something. So the other side, burning that body. So sometimes, a <laughs> lot of smoke and also bad smell. <laughs> <It's like that. laughs> then the ashes of that body, you see, thrown into the water. So I think some blessing to fish like that. <laughs> sometimes, you see, it is our traditional sort of habit. We must respect but at the same time, we have to think today's reality. Although it is part of our own sort of tradition or uh, like caste system. Or, or tradition, but now today's sort of reality, uh, we have to change something, these things. I think in many, many other traditions, I think. So, so we can't say it is our sort of way of life. We can't say that. We have to think about the reality. What benefit, what harmfulness. That's very, very important. Um, this question is from Brian Palenik. Uh, does an ethical response of humans to an environmental problem depend on the potential consequences of the problem? In other words, does the potential seriousness of a problem affect the ethical dimension of the response? And do, do different religions treat this question differently? As I, think, as I mentioned before, I think everybody is want a nice house and taking care about the house. That not necessarily uh, we consider uh, unless you take care of the house, house got some kind of pain. No. Just this is my house. So in order to you live comfortably, uh, you have to take care about the furniture, about the uh, building, house or environment, some garden, some flowers. So, that view, even I think birds, when they nest, they're really taking full care about their small nest. Sometimes I think we human beings, if you, if you make that kind of nest, I think it's difficult. It's all birds, they really beautifully, you see, they construct their, their nest, isn't it? Yeah. 
So these, not necessarily, they respect the nest, but their own sort of youngsters' sort of survival depend on that. So that is it, that view or that sort of understanding. Uh, that understanding, you see, expand. That whole planet is our home. We have to take care. So this is not It's not a religious matter. Mm. Then, then religious thing, I think, uh, one my Muslim friend, uh, he publicly sort of expressed uh, a genuine Islam practitioner should extend love, compassion towards entire creatures because you respect Allah. So then, that same, the Christian also, I think, so you see, the same logic, the, this beautiful planet created by God, so we must take care. It is wrong just to exploit as much as possible without care. It's wrong. So I think, so of course we can draw from the resources of the religious tradition to further reinforce our commitment to this kind of responsibility. But for me, more convincing is scientific explanation. That's more convincing. No question. <laughs> Um, so this is actually a question for you, Your Holiness. Uh, this is from Sarah Gordon. And she says, this question is for His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. Because I ask, in part, how to maintain patience and a sense of calm during difficult times. For example, how do you suggest that we as citizens who trust that climate change is happening at a dangerous rate engage in a meaningful discussion with those who disbelieve and have preconceived notions and create temper and strong emotion and make it hard to explain the science in a rational way. I think that depends on the basic sort of mental attitude towards that person. Uh, if you have, now for example, when I come across, this is some sort of uh, difficult person. Firstly, I recognize that also another human brother, sister. We have to respect. So there are different views. We have to respect. We have to listen with respect. They are view. And in the meantime, uh, with that kind of attitude, if necessary, some argument. And very pleasant argument. Right? Okay. So, uh, 
uh, when we carrying some debate, very serious argument. Sometimes you see the one, one, one panna sabreda, one panna face may become red. <laughs> very serious. But you see, in deeper level, no sort of negative feeling. So after that sort of because of the serious debate, disagreement, uh, then, you see, even so His Holiness is here talking about the experience of traditional monastic debates, which is part of the education system. I think many, uh, you know, as I briefly I mentioned, those Nalanda masters, these log- logicians and philosophers, serious debate. Sometimes they use little sort of harsh words also. But you see, they in deeper, deeper feeling, respect each other. No problem. So, I think when someone uh, sort of confront, uh, com- confront, you see, different views, listen, respect. And then some sort of what's the friendly argument. Uh, we, sh- we have to take for granted the bills of humanity, different views. Once the Bob, Bob, Bob Livingston, Livingston you see, told me uh, at that time six billion human beings. So he mentioned six billion human beings have a sort of six billion different views about the world. <laughs> it is very true. It is very true. That take for granted. So naturally, there are different views. It is automatically coming. So you should. Uh, I think if you sort of, sort of, too much sort of, I think self-centered, my view is 100% right. So then others, different views, then feel some uncomfortable feeling. That's, I think, narrow-mindedness. Think, oh, very possible, different views. I think, now, maybe, because of that, Unrelated, but I may usually I say talk, talking to people within or say the Buddha's teaching. I mean, different explanation about the reality. So there are different or say the explanation. Explanation come from one person. That's Buddha Shakyamuni. Uh, Looks contradiction. So I usually say telling people that is a contradictory philosophy come from same person, not necessarily his own confusion in his own mind. No. No, he deliberately tried to create more confusion among his followers. He deliberately taught contradictory philosophy, contradictory views. That also no. So then, answer is, among his own follower, there are many different sort of mental sort of disposition. So, uh, Buddha need talk different views according different mental dispositions, people like that. So it's understandable. 
I think take for granted different views and the respect. If if you Kasurda through talk, through little argument, if you win, that is your victory. <laughs> if not win, okay, accept that. <laughs> no need some kind of because of the different feelings. Right? Oh. And then also that there were and also, you know, there might be times where you cannot do really much at all. In such situations, uh, it would be useful to remember the advice of an 8th century uh, Buddhist master who said... Uh, you know, uh, with respect to a problem, if there is a solution, there is no a need to be overwhelmed, worry about it. And if there is no solution, then there is no point in worrying about it. So that's very practical, very realistic approach, isn't it? <laughs> so that's, uh, for me, you see, that sort of suggestion is very, very helpful to maintain your peace of mind. This will be the final question. Yeah. Um, it's from Rachel Schwartz. Are you optimistic that we will rise to the challenge and deal successfully with climate change? What is your definition of successful in this case? Have we already failed from, say, a biodiversity or deforestation point of view? What do you think is the underlying foundation to the resistance against accepting the signs and making changes to mitigate climate change. How can I, as an individual, convey to others how this is an ethical issue? So there are many questions here. <laughs> well, Maybe I'll take, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll just give a small intro, introduction, and then uh, Richard and His Holiness can continue. You know, I, I take my own personal example. When I started working in this field about 35 years ago, only my wife would come to my talk. <laughs> now I see this audience, and His Holiness correctly said, the awareness of environment has exploded. So I have nothing but optimism society will solve this problem. We just have to help them a little bit. I'm optimistic too. I find that when uh, people question the science, of course, the science is never complete and science doesn't give you certainty. But when people question the things that we're really quite well established, the world is warming, it's not due to the sun, it's not a natural cycle, and so on, they're often concerned not about climate science, but about the policies that they think might be put in place if the science were taken seriously. So people who, whose real objections come from core values in which they might oppose taxes or government interference in free markets or ceding national sovereignty by signing treaties will sometimes 
disguise those concerns, which are legitimate concerns, with questioning the science. And I think it's useful to separate the science. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. And uh, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I think a, a great deal um, can be done if you, if you depoliticize the discussion and say, you know, there aren't any Republican or Democratic thermometers and satellites aren't liberal or conservative, and then, then you can uh, make some, some progress. And I'm optimistic uh, too because there are smart things that can uh, be done, and we've talked about some of them, but there are intelligent things that have many benefits that are really worth um, doing. And I like to think about the comment of an oil minister from Saudi Arabia who was being asked about peak oil and when we would run out of fossil fuels and so on. And he said, you know, the Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. <laughs> so I, I take comfort in that. And I hope that uh, we, find, we get smarter sooner. <laughs> Now, what else? Why I develop genuine respect, admiration? about the science and scientists because uh, our sort of every sort of, sort of activities uh, every, every activities I think the activities which aiming some goal then that activities or that action should be realistic action uh, action carried mainly your wish, your desire, uh, may not achieve. So your goal, you want something, but your action or effort must be realistic. Then the realistic approach will produce satisfactory result. Unrealistic sort of effort, effort. brings sometimes disaster. Any sort of any goal, right? Or global level, or national level, family level, individual level. So, in order to know the reality, I mean, in order to carry realistic approach, you must know the reality. In order to know the reality, there are always gap, appearances, and reality. So, we should not confuse on the level of. Appearances. We must carry research about the reality. That also, uh, uh, that also not one through one dimension, three dimensions, four dimensions, six dimensions. Then you will know the reality better. So scientists 
they carry research. What's the reality? Sometimes maybe specialist just one dimension, isn't it? <laughs> but one scientist is he carry research from that dimension. Another one is he carry research from that dimension. Together, full picture. That's the way. So, and also it's a scientist scientist mind. I found very open mind, and it remains skeptical, skepticism. Skepticism, very necessary. Skeptical attitude brings question. Question brings research. Research or analyze. Uh, right. analysis. Uh, analysis brings fun, answer. Without sort of skepticism, no question. No question, no research. No research, you can't find the reality. So, in the meantime, the scientists... They never imposing their own wish. Just neutral, open mind, and carry research. So therefore, uh, I respect, I admire uh, those scientists. Hmm. Maybe some scientists may be a little bit narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> Except only their own field. <laughs> no others, <laughs> that is some exceptional. But otherwise, I really see find Kasurda uh, and admission. So, now it's my point is research is very, very essential. Very essential. Analyze, analyze things. The reality, there are many levels. You can't satisfy. Uh, on the level of superficial level, must go deeper, deeper, deeper. Then you get the deeper understanding. Deeper understanding. Then dealing with that, either positive or negative, anything. You see, with full sort of understanding about the reality, even you want to do some harms to other. First, you should know the reality, find out their weak point, or then hit on it. <laughs> then that becomes much more effective, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.